أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters ورحمة الله وبركاته and welcome to another episode of the life of Prophet Muhammad in our last episode we spoke about Umratul Qadha, which is the Umrah that the Prophet uh, made up after signing the uh, Treaty of Hudaybiyah. In this episode, we want to give an introduction to the next major battle that occurs. And this, this is a battle that occurs uh, before the conquest of Mecca. And this is the Battle of Mu'tah. Now, before we delve into the details of the battle itself, uh, there are some preliminary details that can help us uh, gain some context. Now, when we speak about the Battle of Mu'tah, of course, Mu'tah is a reference to a place. You know, just like the Battle of Bad, the Battle of Uhud, these are all references to geographical locations. Now, in terms of the location of Mu'tah, Mu'tah. Of course, the Battle of Mu'tah takes place uh, in the 8th year after the Hijrah. So this is a few months before the actual conquest of Mecca. And Mu'tah is a town located in the southern part of modern-day Jordan. It's about, if you look at the map, it's about 30 kilometers southwest of the city of Karak. And this is where the, the historical Battle of Mu'tah uh, took place. Now there's a discussion uh, among Arbabu Siyar, and by Arbabu Siyar, I mean the, the scholars who specialize in the biography of the Prophet. There's a technical discussion among the scholars of the Seerah uh, with respect to what do we call Mu'tah? Was it a Ghazwa? Was it a Sariya? Now as we mentioned in our previous episodes, uh, this is uh, a terminology that we find in uh, the books of Sirah. As we've mentioned, a Sariya is a reference to a military expedition uh, that was that was not led by the Prophet. So these are the the uh, the military expeditions where someone is uh, appointed by the Prophet. Whereas a Ghazwa is a military expedition where the Prophet is acting as the commander and the general of the army. Now, the Prophet ﷺ did not, was not physically present in the battle of Mu'tah. So technically, it is a Sariya because it was actually led by uh, three companions of the Prophet, uh, uh, whom we'll, uh, we'll speak about inshallah shortly. Now, sometimes it's referred to as a Ghazwa simply because of the number, the great number of companions uh, that participated in this battle. So if we go back, for example, to the Battle of Badr, you have a little over 300 companions of the Prophet. If you look at the Battle of Uhud, for instance, you have, you know, upwards of, you know, uh, about a thousand companions participating in the Battle of Uhud. With the Battle of Mu'tah, the historical accounts indicate that there were about 3,000 companions of the Prophet who were sent to Mu'tah to participate in this battle. So because 
this is not in an ordinary uh, military expedition, uh, and it rivals the major battles of Islam in terms of uh, the number of participants. Some uh, scholars of the Sirah they basically refer to it as a ghazwa, but this is a technical uh, discussion that doesn't really have much importance. Now, why is the Battle of Mu'ta so significant in the prophetic biography? For a number of reasons. Number one, this is the first Muslim battle that takes place outside of the Arabian Peninsula. You know, it happens uh, in the tor- territory of modern day Jordan. So in terms of geography, it's much further than where the battles of Islam are taking place. It's taking place near the the border of the Roman Empire. The Battle of Mu'ta is also significant because of the the martyrs of Mu'ta. Some of the most prominent and elite companions of the Prophet were tragically martyred in the Battle of Mu'ta. So Rasulullah he loses companions of the highest eminence, eminence who, you know, one could say that these are people who are really irreplaceable uh, in terms of, you know, what, uh, you know, how great they were in the Muslim community. And the three main shuhada of Mu'ta are Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, and we'll speak about him inshallah shortly. Uh, and this is, of course, the elder uh, brother of Ali ibn Abi Talib. He was the leader of uh, the Muslim diaspora in Abyssinia, a man who was so influential that he played a role in the conversion of Najashi. And then you have Zayd ibn Haritha, who was the adopted son of the Prophet, who was so beloved to the Prophet, and whom the Prophet loved as though he was his own son. And in fact, oftentimes Zayd ibn Haritha would be referred to as Zayd ibn Muhammad, because of how beloved he was to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi Zayd ibn Haritha was martyred in the Battle of Mu'ta, and then you have the great Sahabi, the the uh, the warrior poet, as he is called, uh, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, also fell uh, in this battle. So some uh, very prominent and elite Sahaba uh, were tragically killed uh, in this battle, and. The, the land of Mu'ta today is actually a place, a place that is considered a mazar, meaning Muslims from different denominations and different sects, they uh, visit the, the mausoleums of, uh, of these great martyrs. And this is you know, an important point to, uh, to mention here is that visiting shrines and mausoleums is not something that is exclusive to Shia Muslims. Uh, visiting the qubur, visiting the graves of the great personalities of Islam was a mainstream Islamic practice. Uh, Sunni Muslims used to go and pay their respects uh, at these uh, holy sites. They would visit the companions of the Prophet. They would send salam to them. They would salute them. But unfortunately, you know, in the past, uh, you know, several decades, over the past several decades, we see the rise of Wahhabism and a very extreme form of Salafism, which basically uh, uh, has uh, uh, labeled this practice as a deviant practice. And some go as far as accusing uh, 
Muslims of committing shirk simply because they're visiting and they're paying their respects to these uh, great uh, figures in Islamic history. Now, in any case, when we look at the Battle of Mu'tah, uh, one, of course, is naturally going to ask, uh, what was the purpose of the battle? You know, what caused and what triggered uh, this military conflict? Now, when you look at the, the sources that we have, uh, the great uh, Muslim historian, Al-Waqidi, who died in 207 after the Hijrah. So this is definitely one of the, the, early, one of the earliest sources on the Seerah. Uh, Al-Waqidi basically reports that the Prophet ﷺ, he sent an army uh, to Mu'tah, to the, the Syrian frontier uh, near the Roman uh, border. And this was basically a response to the murder of one of Rasulullah Alaihi emissaries. So uh, this emissary was killed by one of the, the leaders of the Ghassan, the Ghassanid tribe. Uh, and this man's name is uh, uh, Shurahbil ibn Amr. And the Prophet he sends a man by the name of Al-Harath ibn Umayr al-Azdi to deliver a message to the ruler of Busra, uh, which is basically... Um, an area that is still is technically under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire and this emissary of the Prophet was killed and to kill an ambassador to kill an emissary even in modern times is considered to be a declaration of war it's something that was well known in the ancient world the pre-modern world in modern times that you never kill an ambassador. You never take the life of an emissary. If you do, it's seen as an escalation and it's seen as a declaration of war. So Al-Waqidi basically says that the battle of Mu'tah was a response to the assassination of the Prophet's emissary to the town of Busra. And the Prophet was basically wanted to send a letter, uh, perhaps inviting the Romans into the fold of Islam. However, uh, Al-Harith uh, ibn Umayr al-Azdi is killed. Now after the Prophet's ambassador is basically murdered in cold blood, Al-Waqidi basically continues and he says, وَبَلَغَ خَبَرُهُ إِلَىٰ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ فَاشْتَدَّ عَلَيْهِ ذَلِكَ The news of the assassination of Al-Harith ibn Umayr al-Azdi, it reaches the Prophet, and the Prophet was, uh, was greatly distressed by this news, he was angered by this. The Prophet ﷺ, he informed the Muslim community about what had transpired, about the tragic death of Al-Harith. And then Al-Waqidi says, Al-Waqidi here says, um, the Prophet indicated to them, and it's, it, it, it was as though he was requesting his companions to uh, mobilize and to form an army and advance toward the Syrian front team, front, frontier. Now, at this point, the Prophet ﷺ, uh, uh, was exhorting his companions to prepare for, for battle. But up until now, the Prophet ﷺ had not appointed a military leader. He hadn't appointed 
uh, someone to lead this, uh, this battle. Now, as I mentioned, there are 3,000 companions that come forward and volunteer. Now, of course, this doesn't represent the whole of Medina, but a sizable number of companions, they come forward, they volunteer to go to battle and to advance towards uh, the Syrian frontier. So you have 3,000 companions who step up to the plate. Now, because of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Prophet ﷺ felt more comfortable sending out that many men. You know, typically in the pre-Hudaybiyah period, we see the Prophet ﷺ was always very wary of leaving uh, Medina unmanned because this would make the Muslims vulnerable to attack from you know, the neighboring nomadic tribes and from Quraysh. But because, of, because the Treaty of Hudaybiyah uh, guaranteed uh, peace and safety, the Prophet ﷺ felt that it was, uh, it was appropriate to allow that many soldiers to empty out of Medina and advance towards uh, the Roman uh, border. Now, what we see uh, from the, the narrations, we have a narration that speaks about the individuals whom the Prophet appoints as the military leaders of Mu'ta. One of the contemporaries of Imam al-Sadiq, Aban ibn Uthman al-Ahmar, who was a, a, a companion of the Prophet, who was someone who was very interested in the history of Islam, he reports a narration from Imam al-Sadiq where Imam al-Sadiq says, أَنَّهُ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ اسْتَعْمَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ جَعْفَرِ بْنِ أَبِي طَالِبِ فَإِنْ قُتِلْ فَزَيْدِ بْنِ الْحَارِثَ فَإِنْ قُتِلْ فَعَبْدُ اللَّهِ بْنِ رَوَاحَ it's very interesting here that Imam al-Sadiq says that the Prophet ﷺ appointed three commanders. And it just shows you how important this battle is. The Prophet wanted there to be someone in charge because of what was at stake, because of the number of men uh, who are participating. Uh, this was a very serious battle. So the Prophet appoints three commanders. The first commander is Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. And the Prophet and the Imam al-Sadiq says that the Prophet tells the Muslims, he tells his companions that Ja'far ibn Abi Talib is the first commander. If Ja'far ibn Abi Talib is killed in battle, the one who takes his place as commander is Zayd ibn, Zayd ibn Haritha. And if Zayd ibn Haritha is killed, then the one, the companion who steps forward and replaces him as military commander and general is Abdullah ibn Rawaha. Now, why is this significant? Because when you look at the, the Sunni sources, Sunni sources agree that Abdullah ibn Rawaha is the third commander. He's the third in line. But there's a difference in uh, the order of Ja'far ibn Abi Talib and Zayd ibn Haritha. In Sunni sources, the Prophet allegedly, allegedly says, Zayd ibn Haritha is the first commander, if Zayd ibn Haritha is killed, then Ja'far ibn Abi Talib is second in command and if Ja'far ibn Abi Talib is killed and then you have Abdullah ibn Rawaha Imam al-Sadiq says no 
The one who was the first commander was Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. And then Zayd ibn Haritha, and then after him is Abdullah ibn Rawaha. And this is uh, noteworthy because again, uh, this is based on, so this order is based on the narration of Imam al-Sadiq. And also if you look at the poetry of Hassan ibn Thabit, who was one of the great poets among the companions of the Prophet, he explicitly mentions Ja'far ibn Abi Talib being the first commander. Now this is an example of uh, how individuals and how historians throughout history uh, essentially discriminate against the Alawis, against the, the Hashemites, where others are always, they, they're always put ahead of them. So here is you know, a, a small example about how you know, sometimes individuals in, Islam, in, in, the, in the history of Islam, they try to give the family of Abu Talib and the Bani Hashim, you know, uh, they try to diminish their position uh, by saying that, oh, you know, there were others who were ahead of them. Uh, what we, but when you look at the narration of Imam al-Sadiq and the poetry of Hassan ibn Thabit, uh, they all point to the fact that Ja'far ibn Abi Talib was the first commander of the army. Now, again, going back to uh, the the narration that I mentioned, the narration then says, if Abdullah ibn Rawaha is killed, فَإِنْ قُتِلْ فَعَبْدُ ibn Rawaha فَإِنْ أُصِيبَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ فَإِنْ أُصِيبَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ ibn Rawaha فَلْيَرْتَضِ الْمُسْلِمُونَ بَيْنَهُمْ رَجُلًا فَلْيَجْعَلُوهُ عَلَيْهِمْ The Prophet says, if Abdullah ibn Rawaha is martyred, then the Muslims from among themselves, they should select someone to lead them. And of course, the narration continues uh, saying, وَعَقَدَ لَهُمْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ The Prophet ﷺ, he gave his army a white flag. Now, of course, in, a, in the Western context, a white flag uh, signals surrender, but of course this is not the case. This was just the color of the flag uh, that the Muslims were carrying uh, as they were going towards the Battle of alaf. So this narration again mentions that the number of Sahaba uh, that participated in this expedition were 3,000. So again, a very uh, significant number. Uh, the narrations also mention, and this is mentioned in, in multiple uh, sources, in Sunni and Shia hadith sources, المسير, When uh, the companions had decided and they were advancing uh, towards Mu'tah, The people of Medina, they were walking with the, the Muslim army and they were farewelling one another and the soldiers were farewelling their families because again, you know, it's very possible that many of these men would be killed in battle. So you can imagine how emotional it was for the wives and the children and the elders, you know, seeing their men and, and uh, farewelling them as they exit Medina. Before the army departs Medina, the narrations mention two sermons that the Prophet delivers to the army. And this is important. And uh, the the narrations actually mention uh, the khutbah, the sermon that the Prophet gave to the Muslims. 
So the first sermon that he gives as they're preparing to leave Medina and travel towards the Syrian frontier, he says to his companions, "Ulsiikum Allah." It's very important here to note that in Islam, military conflict is not just a matter of acquiring material goods or expanding uh, a pers- uh, the the uh, the uh, the empire of the Muslims. It's not, it's not just about the acquisition of land and the acquisition of spoils. The Prophet as they're preparing for uh, battle, as they're preparing to go towards the battle, the Prophet reminds them to be God conscious. Because jihad is not just war. Jihad is an ibadah. Even if you look at the, the books on Islamic law, jihad is considered to be part of the chapters on al-ibadat. Meaning, a person is only rewarded for fighting on the battlefield if they are doing it with the intention of seeking nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning, the primary motivator should be nothing other than to attain the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If someone joins the Prophet in battle and they're doing it for the sake of acquiring uh, spoils or to be praised and, uh, and, uh, and held in high regard, by, by their peers, this action is not accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, they would be committing a sin because jihad is considered an act of worship. So hence the Prophet begins by addressing them with this instruction of being God conscious. The Prophet is addressing 3,000 of his companions and he says to them, in addition to taqwa, being God conscious, you should treat your fellow Muslims who are standing side by side with you in battle, treat them well, be kind to each other. You are brothers in faith, look after one another. And then the Prophet says, Depart in the name of God and on the path of God. Meaning, go forward at every phase of this military expedition, be conscious of God. Do everything for the sake of God and not for the sake of your egos and not for the sake of any uh, materialistic gain. And then the Prophet says, Fight whoever denies God. Whoever stubbornly rejects God. The Prophet says, fight those who do not who deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But do not break treaties. Do not be treacherous. Do not break promises. And when you fight, do not mutilate the bodies of your enemies. Don't kill children. The Prophet is setting important uh, uh, rules of combat. That just because this is a battle, it doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all. There are red lines that have to be observed. Allah has set red lines that you cannot cross, that you cannot transgress. You have to, you have to still be honorable, even when you are fighting in the battlefields. وَإِذَا لَقِيتَ عَدُوَّكَ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ And when you encounter your enemy... 
when you encounter your enemy, call them to one of the following. The Prophet is reminding the Muslims that when you encounter your enemy, don't straight away start fighting. No, invite them to, th- to one of three things. If they accept any of the three offers that you make to them, then you should not fight them. So again, you see the Prophet ﷺ being a prophet, a messenger of God, who is always trying to find peaceful ways to resolve conflicts. The Prophet ﷺ, when it came to military conflict and fighting in the battlefields, it was always a last resort. The Prophet ﷺ always tried to use diplomatic means. And then the Prophet says to them, ثُمَّدْعُهُمْ إِلَى الْإِسْلَامِ The first thing that you should say when you encounter your enemy is invite them to Islam. Invite them to Islam wholeheartedly and genuinely wish the best for them. Invite them to Islam. Introduce them to Islam. And of course, when you have the likes of Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, when you have the likes of Zayd ibn Haritha and Abdullah ibn Rawaha, these are not just warriors. These are very, very learned companions of the Prophet who have completely imbibed the spirit of Islam. These are scholar warriors. Warriors who are also scholars. You know, very rare breeds. فَإِنْ أَجَابُوكَ فَقْبَلْ مِنْهُمْ If you invite them to Islam and they comply and they accept your invitation, then let them go. You have no right to be hostile towards them. ثُمَّدْعُهُمْ إِلَى التَّحَوُّلِ مِنْ دَارِهِمْ إِلَى دَارِ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ If they accept Islam, invite them, call them to relocate and to reside in Dar al-Muhajirin, in the the territory of the emigrants, meaning let them come to Medina, let us fortify our city, let us build our city as brothers and sisters in faith. وَأَخْبِرْهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ إِنْ فَعَلُوا ذَلِكَ فَلَهُمْ مَا لِلْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَعَلَيْهِمْ مَا عَلَى الْمُهَاجِرِينَ If they become Muslim and they relocate and they settle in Medina, then they will share the benefits and the harms of the Muhajireen. Meaning that they will be treated the same way that the early converts of Islam are treated. What an honor that the Prophet is not going to treat them like second class citizens in his community. If you join Islam and you settle in Medina, you will be treated with the same reverence and respect as the early converts to Islam. فَإِنْ أَبَوْ So this was the first uh, invitation. The Prophet says, give them three offers. This was the first offer. Invite them to Islam and have them relocate. فَإِنْ أَبَوْ If they accept Islam, فَإِنْ أَبَوْ أَنْ يَتَحَوَّلُوا مِنْهَا فَأَخْبِرْهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ يَكُونُونَ كَأَعْرَابِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ if they accept Islam, but they insist on remaining in their homeland, and they don't have any desire to relocate and to move to Medina, then tell them that they are like the Muslim Arabs, and the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala apply to them. They are fully Muslim. وَلَا يَكُونُ لَهُمْ فِي الْغَنِيمَةِ وَالْفَيْءِ شَيْءٌ إِلَّا أَنْ يُجَاهِدُ مَعَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ But they will not be given the shares of the spoils of war that the Muslims participate in, unless they also join the Muslims. So they don't get the same perks, because all of those who are in Medina, they 
are recipients of uh, khums, you know, so they benefit from the spoils when Muslims uh, go to battle. So they're fully Muslim, but they're deprived of the spoils that are acquired by the Muslims in battle. If they want to uh, receive a portion of the spoils, they would have to participate with the Muslims when they go to, to battle. This is the second option. فَإِنْ أَبَوْ If they refuse to become Muslim, فَإِنْ, فإن هُمْ أَبَوْ فَاسْأَلْهُمُ if they don't, if they refuse to become Muslim, then call them to pay jizya, which is a special tax that is levied against non-Muslims from Ahlul Kitab. Jizya is only taken from Ahlul Kitab, meaning jizya is not offered to uh, mushrikeen, idol worshippers. It's it's only offered to Ahlul Kitab. So since the Prophet is sending his army towards the Romans, and the Romans are Christians, so they have the option of remaining upon their monotheistic tradition. Whereas if the Prophet ﷺ was fighting against the mushrikeen, the idol worshippers, they would not be given this option of jizya. It's either you become Muslim or you know we settle this conflict in the battlefield. Jizya is a third option that is afforded to Ahlul Kitab. فَإِنْهُمْ أَجَابُوكَ If they accept to pay jizya, this tax to the Muslim state, the, the government of the Prophet, then accept it and don't fight them. فَقْبَلْ مِنْهُمْ وَكُفَّ عَنْهُمْ فَإِنْهُمْ أَبَوْ But if they re- refuse to become Muslim and they refuse to pay jizya, فَاسْتَعِنْ بِاللَّهِ وَقَاتِلْهُمْ But if they do not comply with this, then ask Allah for His help and fight them. You have my green light to engage in battle with them. And then the Prophet says, وَإِذَا حَاصَرْتَ أَهْلَ حِصْنٍ فَأَرَادُوكَ أَن تَجْعَلَ لَهُمْ ذِمَّةَ اللَّهِ وَذِمَّةَ نَبِيِّهِ فَلَا تَجْعَلْ فَلَا تَجْعَلْ لَهُمْ ذِمَّةَ اللَّهِ وَذِمَّةَ نَبِيِّهِ and if you, the Prophet is saying to his companions, and if you besieged people of a fort or a city, and they asked you to put them under the protection of God and the Prophet, then reject their request. Why? وَلَكِنْ اجْعَلْ لَهُمْ ذِمَّتَكَ وَذِمَّةَ أَصْحَابِكَ فَإِنَّكُمْ أَنْ تُخْفِرُوا ذِمَّمَكُمْ وَذِمَّةَ أَصْحَابِكُمْ أَحْوَنُ مِنْ أَنْ تُخْفِرُوا ذِمَّةَ اللَّهِ وَذِمَّةَ نَبِيَّ So the Prophet says, if you besieged people of a fort or a city and they ask you to put them under the protection of God and the Prophet, then reject their request. Instead, put them under the protection of your own and your companions, since if they violate the protection of your treaty and the treaty of your companions that would be better than violating that of God and His Messenger. So the Prophet is basically saying that because it's possible for these people to renege on their treaty, offer them your protection. Do not offer them the protection of God and His Messenger because it would be a greater sin for them to violate a treaty that is officially offered to them by Allah and His Messenger than to violate a treaty that is offered uh, uh, by the, the companions themselves.
Again, the narration continues. So this is the end of the first sermon that the Prophet gives to his men. So the narration says that the Prophet, he escorted uh, the men, the, uh, the soldiers who were going for the battle of Mu'tah. The Prophet, again, showing them great respect and honor. Uh, he walks with them to farewell them. is basically the northwest entrance point of Medina. For those of you who, if you look at the map of Medina, Medina is covered by lava rock from the east, west, and the south. And the only way to enter or to exit Medina is from the northwest corner. And in that region, you have two hills because Thaniya means, comes from the word Ithnain, which means two. So because you have these two hills, uh, this was the place where the residents of Medina would receive people who would arrive or they would farewell those who are departing. Fawakafa. So 3,000 of the companions, they're there at Thaniya uh, Tulwada, the place where. Uh, the, the residents would farewell their loved ones. So the companions are standing around the Prophet and they're about to now exit Medina. The Prophet gives them a second uh, short sermon. Again, the Prophet is trying to purify the intentions of the Sahaba that depart in the name of Allah. Right. Depart in the name of God. Again, reminding them of Allah, ensuring that they're God conscious, and fight the enemy of God and your enemy in Syria, meaning the Syrian frontier. And then the Prophet again, highlighting uh, rules of engagement when it comes to military conflict. Conflict. Rasulullah it is reported that he says. وَسَتَجِدُونَ فِيهَا رِجَالًا مُعْتَزِلِينَ لِلنَّاسِ فِي الصَّوَامِعِ The Prophet says, when you go to the Syrian frontier, you will see people who worship God in their monasteries. You'll see monks, for example, because it's, a, it's part of the Roman Empire. You'll see uh, monks in their monasteries. Rasulullah says, do not encroach upon them. Do not attack their scholars. Do not attack those who are worshipping in their monasteries. And you will see people whose heads are Satan's nests. It seems the Prophet might be describing uh, helmets of those who have come to fight. The Prophet says those who are armed, and it's very clear that they've come to fight you, then you have my permission to decapitate them. To fight them in battle. فَقْلَعُوهَا بِسُّيُوفِ You can strike their helmets with your swords. And then the Prophet ﷺ, what does he say? He tells his men, Never kill women. وَلَا تَقْتُلُنَّ مْرَأَ وَلَا صَغِيرًا مُرْضِعًا وَلَا كَبِيرًا فَانِيًا Do not kill women. Even if women use abusive language with you, even if they curse you and they taunt you, do not kill women. Do not kill children. Do not kill elderly people. 
If you see an old man, don't say that, okay, you know, we can attack him because he's part of the, he's one of the enemies. If it's an old, an elderly person who's not involved in the battle, you leave them alone. You do not harm them. And then the Prophet says, and never set palm groves to fire. Don't destroy the vegetative life. Don't cut down trees. And do not destroy houses. The Prophet is telling his men that we're not a force of destruction. We are trying to eradicate oppression. We are not, uh, we don't want to be a force of corruption. We want to be a force of reformation, a force of liberation. So do not destroy the vegetation, do not cut down trees, do not destroy homes, and so on. So the Prophet concludes his sermon. There's a very beautiful conversation here between Abdullah ibn Rawaha and the Prophet. Now again, Abdullah ibn Rawaha is the third military commander that has been appointed by the Prophet. So again, this brigade of 3,000 soldiers is being led by Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. He's the first commander. As long as he's alive, he's the leader of the army. If, Abd, if Ja'far ibn Abi Talib is killed, Zayd ibn Haritha takes charge. And if Zayd ibn Haritha is killed, Abdullah ibn Rawaha. So again, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, among the companions, he's one of the greatest companions of the Prophet. And again, this is very important for us to emphasize because there is a misconception in the minds of many that the Shia have malice and animosity towards the companions of the Prophet. This is not true. The Shia hold the companions of the Prophet who were obedient to the Prophet, especially those who laid their lives down for Islam during the life of the Prophet, we hold them in the highest regard. An example is Abdullah ibn Rawaha, Zayd ibn Haritha, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. The Shia salute these Sahaba. In fact, we seek nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the intercession of such personalities. So the narration says, So Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he asks the Prophet for some advice. قَالَ لَهُ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ مُرْنِي بِشَيْءٍ أَحْفَظُهُ عَنْكِ Abdullah ibn Rawahi says, Ya Rasulullah, give me some advice that I can remember and I can preserve. فَقَالَ لَهُ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَآلِهِ إِنَّكَ قَادِمٌ غَدًا بَلَدًا السُّجُودُ بِهِ قَلِيلٌ فَأَكْثِرُ السُّجُودُ What a beautiful piece of advice the Prophet gives. Rasulullah tells Abdullah ibn Rawahi again, this is powerful because it's, the, it's in the context of battle and war. The Prophet says, You will soon enter a land where prostration to God is something very rare. Very few people prostrate to God. So what should you do? So try to perform sujood as much as possible. And then the Prophet stopped. He did not say anything. فَقَالَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ زِدْنِي يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ so Abdullah asks the Prophet for more advice. So the Prophet ﷺ, he says, The Prophet says, remember Allah all the time because He is the one who will help you attain what you want to achieve. 
have your greatest hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَانْطَلَقَ بْنُ رَوَاحَ ذَاهِبًا ثُمَّ رَجَعَ إِلَيْهِ So Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he left after the Prophet gave him two pieces of advice. The first was, you're going to a land where sujood is very rare, so increase your sujood. And be mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and seek His help because He is the one who will help you attain what you want to attain. He leaves and then he comes back to the Prophet. And he says, Ya Rasulullah, إِنَّ اللَّهَ وِتْرٌ يُحِبُّ الْوِتْرِ Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he says, God is odd, meaning that God is one, an odd number, and he loves the odd numbers. So he's, Abdullah ibn Rawaha is basically saying, Ya Rasulullah, you gave me two pieces of advice, and this is an even number, give me one more piece of advice, make it three so it becomes an odd number. Right? So, I mean, even if you look at some of our, our adhkar, you see that, you know, for example, the third, fourth rak'ah, subhanallah, walhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah, wallahu akbar, you do it once or three times. This is what's mustahab. You know, takbiratul ihram, you know, do it once, which is an odd number, or seven times, which is also mustahab. So you see this, uh, these odd numbers even in uh, some of our uh, ritual worship. So the third piece of advice that the Prophet gives to Abdullah ibn Rawaha is, Ya ibn Rawaha, مَا عَجَزْتَ فَلَا تَعْجِزَنَّ إِنْ أَسَأْتَ عَشْرًا أَنْ تُحْسِنْ وَاحِدًا O son of Rawaha, if you fail to do anything, do not fail to do at least one good deed in case you have done ten bad deeds. Meaning, the Prophet is saying that if you happen to commit ten sins, you make ten mistakes, then at least make up for those mistakes by doing one good deed. Because one of the most powerful effects of good deeds is that they eradicate sins. One of the ways in which we attain the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to do hasanat, do good deeds. Al-hasanat yudhibna sayyat. Because the good deeds, they repel, they remove the, the evil actions. Abdullah ibn Rawaha, when he receives this advice from the Prophet, he says, لا أسألك عن شيء بعدها. That, I'm not going to ask you for any more advice. Meaning, it's as though Abdullah ibn Rawaha is saying to the Prophet that what you have given me in terms of spiritual insight and advice is sufficient. And Abdullah ibn Rawaha, uh, he goes on his way. So as I've mentioned, this is one of the unique battles of Islam where the Prophet is very careful and he's, he's, very, uh, he's very concerned about there being leadership in, in this battle. He appoints three commanders, one after the other, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, Zayd ibn Harith, and Abdullah ibn Rawaha. Now it is reported that the men, they approach the Syrian border. So now they're traveling towards uh, this region and they receive some very distressing news. They receive word that the Romans have assembled an army of 10,000 men. Now, there's a lot of discrepancy about the number, the, uh, the figures, the number of fighters in Mu'ta on the side of the Romans. I've seen some narrations that put the numbers at 100,000. Now, the point is that the Muslims discover that the Romans have a huge army. The Muslims are, uh, are outnumbered. So, 
According to a narration that we have from Aban ibn Uthman's book, uh, in, in Aban ibn Uthman's book, the Muslims learned about the huge number of their enemies, and you have kind of a, a coalition, an alliance of different, uh, different tribes joining. So you have many Christian tribes joining the Romans because you know they have a shared religious tradition. The enemy moved to the area of Musharif under the commandership of a person called Malik ibn Zafila. So he was the commander of this, uh, this Roman brigade that consisted of uh, these tribes. When the Muslims learned about where their enemy was camping, they resided in Ma'an. Again, so these are, all, these are different villages near the Syrian frontier. So the Muslims settle in this area for two nights. Now what are they doing? They're trying to strategize about what to do. Because they had not anticipated that they would be that severely outnumbered. They would be outnumbered uh, by that much. So some of them, they were speaking amongst each other and they said, some of them suggested, نَكْتُبُ إِلَىٰ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ So some of the Sahaba, they suggested that we should write a letter to the Prophet informing him about how, how much our enemies are. We should... Tell the Prophet that, Ya Rasulullah, uh, the Romans are much greater in number than we anticipated. بالرجال, so either, the, if, when the Prophet discovered this, either he's going to send us reinforcements, or he'll give us some other instruction and we'll follow the instruction of the Prophet. So you sense hesitation in the ranks of the Muslims. Many of them are genuinely afraid, right? When you have you know, odds that are, you know, basically four to one almost, uh, many of them feel like this is a suicide mission. The narrations say, Abdullah ibn Rawaha. Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he stands up and he addresses the companions of the Prophet. Abdullah ibn Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he says to the companions of the Prophet, he says that I swear to Allah that what you dislike, right? because all of them are hesitant, because they are afraid of death. Abdullah ibn Rawaha is saying that I swear by Allah that what you dislike is what you have departed for and what you are seeking. Meaning that the, re- the reason why we're coming out here is that we're, we want to attain shahada. And then he says, When we fight, he says to them, we're not relying on our numbers. We're not relying on our numbers or our weapons or our armaments. Because if you look at the battle of Badr, we were, we were also outnumbered, but Allah gave us victory. We won the battle of Badr because of Allah's help, not because we had numbers or we had weapons. So Abdullah ibn Rawaha is basically telling the Sahaba that what's wrong with you guys? What has changed? Don't you remember the early days of Islam? Don't you remember those early battles? Why don't you have the same resolve? The Lord who helped us in Badr against our enemies, even though they were three times our, our size, is the same Lord that will support us and help us in this battle. And then he says, ma نُقَاتِلُهُمْ our real strength is our iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah has 
given us the greatest honor, and that is the honor of faith, the honor of his religion. فَانْطَلِقُوا Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he says, let's keep on going. I don't care about how many, uh, how many soldiers the Romans have. Let's go, let's advance, let's keep on moving. فَإِنَّمَا هِيَ إِحْدَ الْحُسْنَيَيْنِ Because we're, we are moving towards two excellent, two possible excellent outcomes. إِمَّا ظُهُورُ Either we are victorious in battle, we defeat them in the battlefield, and we gain honor, we gain, we taste the sweetness of victory, or we're martyred, and we meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the crown of martyrdom, and we earn eternal life and eternal honor in paradise. The words of Abdullah ibn Rawaha struck the hearts of the companions, and they were motivated. He had elevated uh, their morale. He lifted their spirits and their morale. And the Muslims moved forward until they arrived in Al-Balqa, which is a village uh, near the village of Musharraf, which is where the, the Roman army was, uh, where the army of Heraclius, the Roman Empire, had uh, resided. And their army was consisted of Romans and Arab Christians, and from there, the Muslims went to another village in the area of Balqa called Mu'ta. And when they arrived in Mu'ta, they encountered the, uh, the Roman army. And this is basically where the battle of Mu'ta takes place. This, my dear brothers and sisters, was a detailed uh, prelude to the battle of Mu'ta. Inshallah, in our next episode, we'll speak about the details of the battle, and we'll speak about the tragic martyrdom of Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, Zayd ibn Haritha, and Abdullah ibn Rawaha, and we'll speak about their great heroics in the battle of Mu'ta, and we'll also speak about, inshallah, if time permits, we'll speak about the aftermath of the battle of Mu'ta, uh, and what impact it had on the Muslim community back in Medina. Thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for tuning in. Uh, once again, uh, and I look forward to having you join us in our upcoming episodes of the life of Prophet Muhammad. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.